Hi, my name is Lucy, and welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer here on Kids Talk Church History. Exiled five times, hunted down by Roman soldiers, accused of murder, forced to flee in the dark of the night, hiding in a tomb. No, I am not describing the hero of an action movie, although someone could definitely make a movie about his life. I'm talking about a fourth century bishop named Athanasius, who stood by the teachings of the scriptures when the whole world seemed to go against them. Welcome to the eighth episode of Kids Talk Church History. I am Lucas, I am 14, and I live in San Diego, California. I'm Linus, I'm 12, and I also live in San Diego, California. I'm Christian, I'm 13, and I live in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm Emma, I'm 15, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. The story of Athanasius has actually a lot to do with Christmas, because he spent his life defending the teaching that Jesus is God. And if we couldn't believe that Jesus is God, then there wouldn't be any reason to celebrate Christmas. Christian, can you tell us something you've learned about Athanasius? Of course. I have read that he was born in Alexandria, one of the main cities in Egypt. He studied under the local bishop, Alexander. When Alexander died, Athanasius became bishop in his place. But not everyone was happy about this. Some people thought he was too young and didn't think he had been properly elected. They made up accusations against him. Some said that he killed a bishop and that they had a hand of the bishop to prove it. But Athanasius's friends were looking for the bishop and found him alive, with both of his hands still attached. I wonder where they got the hand. Did they steal off a corpse or something? Uh, They probably did. That's uh, where the movie could become a thriller, trying to follow the clues. But most of of Athanasius's troubles had to do with his belief about Jesus. In the year 325, before Athanasius became bishop, the Roman emperor Constantine had called a meeting of about 200 bishops to discuss an important question. Was Jesus really God? There are many passages in the Bible that tell us that he is, and we have letters and sermons by pastors who had been teaching just that, but some people doubted it. A priest called Arius taught that Jesus was just a creature, more powerful than other men, but not God. I've read before that Arius made up a song with a catchy tune to convince people that Jesus wasn't God. The song said something like, there was a time when he was not. He meant to say that Jesus was created. Yes, that's like what we were saying in our last episode. One reason why people like Ephraim started to write songs based on the Bible. But at the meeting, the bishops agreed that Jesus is God, right? Of course. We call this meeting the Council of Nicaea because the bishops met in that city in today's Turkey. After much discussion, study of the scriptures, and prayer, all the bishops, except two, one of which was Arius, agreed that Jesus is truly God eternal, not created, and equal to the Father. They wrote all this in a document, which is an early form of what we call the Nicene Creed. Oh, yeah, we read that in church. Christian, do you read it in your church? Yeah, we do. We read the Apostles' Creed on one Sunday and the Nicene Creed on the next. And what about you, Emma? We also read the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed in our church. We actually read the Apostles' Creed every Sunday and the Nicene Creed only occasionally. 
We also read the Athanasian Creed occasionally in our church, which is probably not written by Athanasius, but was faithful to his teaching. It reminds me of how the Apostles' Creed was also not written by the person in the title, yet is still faithful to their beliefs. But if most of the bishops agreed, why was Athanasius always on the run? One reason is that one of Constantine's sons, Constantius, very original name, liked the teaching of Arius and tried to get the bishops to sign a paper against the conclusions of the Council of Nicaea. Those who refused were imprisoned or exiled. The book by Simonetta Carr tells the exciting story of Athanasius' escape. So many times he was almost caught, but God protected him. I like the story of the time when he was traveling on the Nile River on a boat and some Roman soldiers came on another boat toward him. They asked him, have you seen Athanasius? And Athanasius said, he's not far from here. He didn't lie, and the soldiers kept going because they didn't know what he looked like. That's a great story. Yeah, it's funny for us, but he must have been really scared. Yeah, it must have been exhausting to run from place to place like that. But he couldn't deny what the Bible says, that Jesus is both true God and true man. He had to be God, otherwise he could not save us, and had to be man because it was man that sinned. That's why he wrote, this struggle is for our all. And it was a big struggle. I have read that the teachings of Arius spread fast in Northern Europe, and in some cities there were actually two bishops, one in favor of Nicaea and one in favor of Arius. Some people were literally fighting in the streets. At one point, Jerome, another church father, said, the world groaned to find itself Arian. Funny thing was, it wasn't. The fact that the majority of Christians have recited the Nicene Creed for centuries, and we still do that in our churches, is another proof that Jesus' promise of preserving his church and his gospel is true. And Athanasius' story can help encourage us today when many people who call themselves Christians end up believing what Arius said. That's just because it's hard to imagine that Jesus can be both fully God and fully man. It doesn't make sense, but that's because we are human beings and he is God. It kind of reminds me of the story of the crows flying over a pagan temple. They were saying, craw, craw, and it sounded like they were saying in Latin, cras, cras, which means tomorrow, tomorrow. At that time, the Roman Emperor Julian was trying to get the empire back to the worship of many gods. But Athanasius thought the crows were saying, wait and see. And he was right. When Julian died, Christianity lived on. Okay, it's mail time. We have two questions. One is from Ian, who is 16 and lives in Milan, Italy. He wants to know how Christians came up with the current books of the Bible. Since Athanasius produced the first known list of the 27 books of the New Testament, this fits with our subject. The second question is from Joseph, also 16. He goes to a Roman Catholic school and asked, how can we respond to Roman Catholics who believe Protestants entirely neglect church history? We can ask our expert both of these questions. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Carl Truman, a renowned historian. But before we turn to him, let me just remind you to send us your questions to this email address, questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. Right now, we have a few copies of Athanasius by Simonetta Carr to give to those who write in. We only have a few, so write soon. That's questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. You can also find it on our website. Let's get back to our discussion of Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea. We have here Dr. Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College, Pennsylvania, host of the Mortification of Spin podcast, and author of many books, including one about the creeds and confessions of the church. Thank you for coming, Dr. Truman. 
It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me on. All right. Dr. Truman, how would you answer Ian? What happened uh, between the time when the apostles wrote the letters that are now included in the New Testament and the time when Athanasius listed the 27 books we have now? Uh, second question, did Christians discuss what writings were the inspired word of God or did it just happen naturally? Well, it's a very interesting question, and there's no easy, straightforward answer, but there are a couple of things that uh, it's important to be aware of when thinking about this. Uh, first of all, uh, what we have, if you go to the second century, we have quite a lot of writings written by people who weren't apostles, but were around at the, at the sort of time just after the apostles. One would be uh, Ignatius of Antioch, one of the early bishops of Antioch. And when you look at these, these early writings, we call them the Apostolic Fathers. What's very interesting is they're already quoting a lot of the, the central books of the New Testament. Uh, so the four Gospels are being quoted. Letters of Paul are being quoted. And they're being quoted in an interesting way. They're not being quoted in a way where the quotation is put out there and then the person feels a need to argue for that quotation being authoritative. They're simply quoted with the assumption, it seems, that the quotation will carry the day, that the, the mere fact of quoting one of Paul's letters is enough to win the argument. So we can see in the second century that already the church is operating with this, what we might call the central books of the New Testament. There's going to be some debate about uh, whether some books are in or out, Second Peter, for example. But in terms of the core texts, the, the Gospels, the big letters of Paul, no debate uh, in the, the early church about those at all. And what we see by the time we get to the fourth century is you know, a more formal recognition with somebody like Athanasius of what books are in or out. Second question that you asked about, was there any debate uh, going on? Well, actually, there's some very interesting debates in the, in the second century between so 100 and 200 uh, AD. There's a man called Marcion. We don't know much about Marcion other than he seems to have lived somewhere along the shores of the Black Sea, a place called Pontus uh, in, in the ancient world. And Marcion didn't like the Old Testament. He thought the Old Testament God was an angry God of judgment in contrast to the New Testament God who was a God of love and forgiveness. And what Marcion did was he sort of he got rid of the Old Testament and quite a bit of the New Testament as well. And he was a fairly influential person. He had apparently quite a following. And Marcion really forced a lot of Christians to think very deeply about the nature of the biblical canon. So we have figures like uh, a Christian bishop called Irenaeus in the later second century, who is reflecting on, you know, why do we need four gospels? These kind of things. So there are discussions about the extent of the Christian canon that are going on very self-consciously in the second century. Thank you for clarifying that. And uh, what about Joseph's question, which can mean, which means a lot to me since I love church history and I also love being Protestant. So how yeah. can we respond to Roman Catholics who believe Protestants entirely neglect church history? Well, I think we respond uh, in exactly the way you have there, Emma, by loving church history. Uh, learning about church history. I think we one of the things that Protestants often do is we tend to think that the church only really begins with, say, Martin Luther in the early 16th century. Uh, we don't think about, well, what was the church doing between when the apostles died and Martin Luther comes on the scene? That's, that's 1,400 years. 
and I think the way we respond to Catholics who say we neglect church history is they know we, we, we ourselves, we, we're going to love church history, we're going to read it. So I would suggest that your listeners respond to their Catholic friends uh, at school on this by, by loving church history, by getting to learn church history. There's some great books out there. It depends how old you are as to, to how deep you want to go. But if uh, some of your younger listeners will probably find uh, uh, Mrs. Carr's uh, books wonderful. They're beautifully illustrated and there's great stories in them. Uh, Christian Focus Publications do a whole set of little church history books. Perhaps readers were slightly older. And then when you get into your teens, uh, as you do, uh, Nick Needham's uh, book, uh, 2000 Years of Christ's Power is a very, very readable church history. So I would say the best way to, to show Catholics that we don't neglect church history, that we do love church history, is to go out there and read it and love it. Um, some people say that Jesus never specifically said that he was God. And even if he didn't, he certainly didn't deny it. For example, when Thomas called him, my Lord and my God. But how would you answer these people? And second question, what other verses can we show to prove that Jesus told us he was God? Yeah, good question. I think the, the Gospels show us Jesus as God in a number of ways. And actually, I do think that Jesus uh, pretty much declares himself to be God at points in the Gospel, because the, that Greek word that we translate as I am is the translation of the divine name in the Old Testament. when. God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am that I am. Well, that's picked up in the New Testament quite a bit, particularly in the, uh, the Gospel of John, for example, where Jesus says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the true vine. Uh, he's using language there that would really have resonated with a Jewish audience, that, that he's making claims uh, about being uh, God. Secondly, of course, that doesn't just occur in, the, in John's Gospel. Uh, when you think of when Jesus uh, is about to go past in the Gospel of Mark, about to walk past the disciples as they are floundering in the sea after the feeding of the 5,000, and he gets aboard, and sometimes that's translated as, you know, I'm here. But what he actually says is, behold, I am. Again, he's sort of using uh, God's name there. Mm -hmm. Then when you think about the miracles that Jesus performs, when he says to the the crowd, you know, what is easier to do, to say to this man, uh, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, take up your bed and walk, but show so that you'll understand that I have power to forgive sins. He says to the man, take up your, your bed and walk. And the Pharisees and the scribes don't like that. They say this man is blaspheming. He's making himself equal with God. In other words, they understand exactly what Jesus is saying and claiming at that point. So I would say there's, there's plenty of evidence in the New Testament that, that Jesus is God. One, some of the things he says, particularly the I am sayings. And secondly, the kind of things he does, the forgiveness of sins, uh, for example. Or we might go to the Gospel of Mark where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And he looks out the people and he sees they're like sheep without a shepherd. He makes them lie down, sit down on the green grass and he feeds them. Uh, well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In pastures green, he leadeth me. He is fulfilling Psalm 23 uh, at that point, very self-consciously so, I think. So plenty of evidence in the New Testament that, that Jesus claims to be God. He may not actually use the statement, I am God, but he's showing it to the people around him in a variety of ways. And his enemies understand it very, very clearly. Yeah, that's great. Also, you have written a book about the creeds. Can you explain what is a creed and why they are important? 
For example, why is the Nicene Creed that is written 17 centuries ago still important today? Very good question. Well, when you think about the Bible, nobody, you might say, I believe the Bible. But really, you don't just believe the Bible. You believe the Bible means something. You believe it means something and you mean, you think that it doesn't mean other things. So we've already talked about Jesus. So say, we all here believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Therefore, we don't believe that the Bible teaches he is not God. So you might say, we don't just believe the Bible. We be, believe the Bible means something. We can tell people what the Bible means. Well, a creed is a way of summarizing what the Bible means on a number of different topics in a very helpful way. And it's helpful in a couple of ways. Uh, one, it's helpful because it allows Christians all over the world and also down through time to have a common account of what the Bible means. You mentioned earlier, I think all of you said that uh, at times in your church, you, you recite the Apostles' Creed or you recite the Nicene Creed. I think, Emma, you say your church recites the Athanasian Creed. That's a long one. Wow. That takes a bit of time to recite the Athanasian Creed. Well, in, when you're doing that, what you're doing is you're showing the world that you all believe the same stuff. You know, there are plenty of people out there who would say they believe the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses believe the Bible, but they don't believe the same as you do. When you speak the creed together, you're letting the whole world know that you belong to this bigger body than your congregation. All Christians across time and space speaking the Nicene Creed are affirming their common faith. So that's the first thing. It allows us to express our common faith. Secondly, creeds allow for us to transmit the faith from one generation to another. How do I know that I believe the same thing that Christians have believed throughout history? Well, we have creeds. We have creeds that pass down through history that establish this common belief that indicates to me that, yeah, we're understanding the Bible in the same way as people did 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. And that's very important and very powerful because we all believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have to believe that there's this common core of Christianity that passes on from generation uh, to generation. So that's another reason why uh, creeds are important. A third reason, I think, is this, and it actually allows you to, to check what your minister's teaching you on a Sunday. If your minister stands up and says to you, you know, on a Sunday, I don't think Jesus is God. A creed gives you an easy way of saying to him, hang on, pastor. The creed says he is. Where, where are you coming from on this? I thought you believed in the creed. So it gives you a way of sort of keeping your pastor on the, on the straight and narrow. And then finally, why is the Nicene Creed important? Well, the Nicene Creed is important because it deals perhaps with the most important of all the truths that the Bible teaches. And that is the very identity of God, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, it teaches us about God. It teaches about creation. It teaches us about Jesus's work. So there are no more important topics on the face of the planet than those that are summarized in the Nicene Creed. I, I love what you said about how the creeds enable us to be unified with the church all throughout time, because that's one of the things that I love so much about church history is, you know, we're unified with all these people 
both geographically across the world and also in time. Like, you know, people who lived thousands of years ago, we are part of their same church. Um, So since it's almost Christmas, it's especially important to remember who Jesus really is, like you were saying with the creeds. So if Jesus was only a man, we would only take him as a good example to follow. And that's probably what most people think at Christmas. But what are they missing? What are they missing at Christmas? Um, do you have a favorite Christmas song that helps people remember who Jesus really is? I think I, I think a lot of it's difficult to, to have a, a single favorite Christmas song. Uh, I think "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel" is great because it points us towards longing for Jesus to come. Uh, I think uh, "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" is is very joyful one, and also uh, talks very much about the mystery of of Jesus's person. "O Come, All Ye Faithful." is another great call to praise. So I would say all of those are good. One of the sad things is we tend only to sing them at Christmas. And of course, they're just good hymns as well. I mean, we call them carols, but really they're just great hymns that you could sing uh, all year round. And I think they point us to uh, some of the things that if you just think Jesus is a a mere human being, you'd be missing. If you think that, uh, think of that line, uh, uh, born that man no more may die. Think of that as a great line, and I think it's in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And you think of that line, if, if all human beings needed was a good example, that would really mean that, that it was just that we were ignorant or not quite as good as we should be. And you don't even need a, a, an incarnate saving then. You know, if you could read a, a good book of instructions on how to live as a human being or, or read Aesop's fables, they would give you all that you need. Deep down inside, we know that our problem isn't just that we, you know, we don't live up to where we should do in terms of how to behave. The really deep problem for human beings is, is we're all going to die. The penalty of, of sin is death. Uh, and we're all going to die. And it doesn't matter how good an example I follow. It doesn't matter how good my diet is, how much I exercise, how well I live my life. I'm going to get old and I'm going to die. And an example just isn't going to help me there. But the miracle of Christmas is the miracle of the incarnation. And that's that the living God comes down and takes human flesh and dies himself in the end, but comes out the other side, is resurrected on the Sunday. And what that points us to is the fact that the incarnation actually solves the biggest human problem. And that is that the punishment of our sin is death. How do we overcome that? Not by following a good example. We actually need God himself to come, if you like, and get hold of our flesh, take it through death and bring it out the other side. So if all you think about Jesus at Christmas is he's a great example, and he is a good example, he's a good teacher, we certainly don't want to deny that. But if all you think about him is that he's a good example, he really doesn't solve the problem of death. You could put it really bluntly, that Jesus who's just a good example, cannot save us, cannot save us from our most deadly enemy, death itself. Thank you, Dr. Truman. That was uh, very inspiring. But before you go, we have two questions we ask all of our guests. The first is, how did you become interested in church history? Well, I happen to think back a long time. I mean, uh, you all gave me your ages. I'm, I'm Carl and I'm 55. So we're going back 40 odd years here. But I think I always enjoyed history, always enjoyed history. Uh, and when I became a Christian, it was natural 
that my interest in history would become an interest in church history. And the first book that I ever read uh, 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 of church history was a, a book by a man called Roland Bainton. And the book was entitled Here I Stand. And it was uh, a book about Martin Luther. And Martin Luther's like Athanasius. His life, you could they have made Hollywood movies out of it. It's a great and exciting life that he lived. And I think it was the, the dynamic excitement of Martin Luther's life that really got me interested in church history. That's really cool. And then do you have any suggestions for kids like us who want to learn more about church history? Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've already mentioned Roland Bainton's Here I Stand. That's a great book. And it actually contains some fun little pictures as well. So it's, it, it's kind of a thick book. But when you when you get hold of it and open it, it's not all print. There are some some cool pictures in there as well. I think there are some really nice uh, movies that have been made that uh, that, that help uh, to, to generate interest in church history as well. There's a, a Martin Luther movie maybe made about 10 years ago that's pretty good. Uh, I certainly think it's good as well to, to get hold of some survey. It's, it's great to dive into the lives of individual Christians, but it's always good to have the big picture. And there I would recommend, I mentioned it earlier on, they're, they're fairly thick books, but they're pretty easy to read. Uh, Nick Needham's books, 2,000 Years of Christ Power. If you read those, and they they take you a little while because they're pretty chunky, but you seem like a, a bright bunch of, uh, of young people. I think you'd find them easy to read. They'll give you the big picture. And then you can decide which bit of church history you're particularly interested in, which characters you're particularly interested in, and you can dive in and read deeply there. But you still have the big picture of what God has done over the last 2,000 years first. And I think you'll find that be like a map that helps you then to focus on the bits you're really interested in. Well, Dr. Truman, we are very thankful that you decided to uh, spend this time with us and share your knowledge. But sadly, it's time now to say goodbye. So, dear listeners, make sure you visit our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org. That's where you'll find all of our podcasts, special offers, news, and more. And if you subscribe to our email newsletter, you will have a chance to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's new book, Church History. Don't forget to tell your friends where they can find us in partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on behalf of my co-hosts, Linus, Emma, and Christian. I'm Lucas, and thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History. Kids Talk Church History.